Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. And we're sitting down here on a rather spring-like day, Stevie, and wondering what we're going to talk about. Ah, well, I've got a plan. Go on. Um, I think this is a very good opportunity to turn the tables and for me to ask you some questions that actually I, 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 have a, I have a pretty good idea of the answers, but not entirely. I mean, you, you, when one looks at your career, I mean, you, you know, the usual thing, everybody says, oh, ab fab, and that's quoted, how old is that now? Well, I think you've been saying 25 years for, for some uh, time. Th- all right, say, all right, all right, say 30. 30. Okay. 30 well, years if ago. If you knew that, why did you ask me? Well, you had trip up on it. Well, <laughs> As it, it felt like yesterday. It's, it's context. Okay. Because the point is, mm-hmm. um, the business of getting started as an actress is pretty complex, isn't it? And and it's a world in which um, a huge proportion of professional actors are not working at any time. I think only 2% of actors work at any uh, can make a I, living. It, it's, it's a, a tiny, shatteringly it's a tiny amount. competitive market. And we hear about the great top earners in the movies, um, millions and millions per movie. But actually, actors pretty much scrape by. But how you start is as different as how many different people there are in the world. That's some people the thing. go to drama school. Some people show early talent. Some people come to it much later in life. A lot of actors find that they can be like Harrison Ford, who I think was a handyman. Or a, I'm get, Harrison, I'm getting this slightly wrong. But anyway, he was kind of a bloke. He was in his 30s before yeah. somebody said, you could do this. And yeah. Why don't you try doing that? Bob Hoskins came late to it. Um, but let's look at it this Some way. actors you, started very early. Yes, go on. A musician mm. will have started learning a musical instrument um, as early as five years old. Um, someone who becomes an artist is bound to be drawing and painting and getting involved in in the act of uh, painting um, and all sorts of, all sorts of the arts. The, you see, the thing about acting, is it really just that as a child you have a certain, <laughs> certain talents or attributes or, or the confidence to perform in front of, you know, your parents or your friends? Or well, uh, look, uh, let, let's get back to the beginning. First of all, the people who have to learn, so instrumentalists, have to learn an instrument. Um, you have to show early talent and a passion for it, and then you have to... Donna will study it and learn how to finger that flute or whatever it might be. Ac- 
acting is simply pretending to be somebody else with varying degrees of... You see, I knew you'd go... You know, I, no, I knew I'm not getting out. What I'm trying to say is that no, what acting is, is what I'm doing now. We belittled speak. it. We I... speak and... No, I'm not belittling it. <laughs> because are. I think it's got a kind of alchemy in it. If you watch Judy Dench turning into somebody, you can't see what happens. If you watch Mark Rylance, you think he's made the words up himself. You can't believe that they were written by somebody else, learnt and absorbed by him and then delivered by him. Because it sounds as they thought of them that second. So it's just doing varying degrees of success. It's pretending to be somebody else, getting into the skin of somebody else. And you can do that very early on in life. But you have to, you have, to have a talent to do that rather well. Oh, well, to be a good actor now this is different. Acting is something. Acting well is something else. Yeah, well, uh, well, that's the same with everything else. I remember Simon Williams, our very good friend, when I, <laughs> I'd said that I'm in awe of actors because I do not understand the process of how you pretend to be someone else convincingly. And he said, oh, no, no, it's very simple. You just um, say you, you, you have a line to say and you just say it naturally. And I thought, that exactly, that's the problem. No one quite can explain exactly what the talent is now, you must be observant. You must like getting up in front of other people um, to get into the shoes of um, another, another person. Um, and does that begin, you know, you, well, as you said, Bob Hoskins came to it very late. But the majority of actors, the majority of actors actually must have some spark somewhere. Was it an interest in theatre? Was it an interest in... No, um, well, for me it or, wasn't. Or were you a show-off when you were no, young? No, this is the thing. I was a show-off. There are different kinds of actors. Exactly. Some and many and most, I would suggest, are actually quite self-effacing, quite modest, um, can't really be seen, aren't kind of the, the life and soul of the party, but can turn in p p performances of such brilliance and s such extremely different characters that you marvel at it and can't work out how it is. Other people are quite sure of you. I tend to come to the second category, which is lots of shouting and showing off. Because I was a clown <laughs> when I was young. I used to like make, making people laugh. I was quite quick at things. I no. could copy people. I was imitative. And I was quite, didn't mind it. And but others recognised that in you. Nobody recognised it. I recognised it in myself and kept on going on until people said, shut up. But that didn't, people didn't implore me to become an actor as I grew up. I was put into school plays, which I liked doing. And sometimes, because it was an all-girls school, I would play the, the male parts because I was tall. But that was good because in Shakespeare you get to play Petruchio because you're tall and you can wear a beard and slap your thigh. And this you was know? in your teens. Yes. Um, but, uh, but I did... I, I loved... I love words. I love literature and I love poetry. I love plays. I love telling stories, and I love another world which isn't our own world. Sometimes, Stevie, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I go, oh, no, it's still her. It's still me <laughs> in my dreams and in my head. What, you I'm want to be someone else? Always. I've always been shocked to find out it's still me, which is why I always wear a lot of makeup and I love changing my hair because I keep thinking one day I'll wake up and I'll look in the mirror and go, she's gone. Listeners, I don't want you to think that my wife gets up every single day and has full <laughs> okay. slap on. Well, 
not far off it now. As you get older and older, I've realised that you're so frightening to look at when you aren't thickly painted. So now I just get up extra early to put on lashings of stuff. And I dye my hair <clears throat> vigorously because I like it. And I will go to my grave with somebody else's false teeth clipped into my head. <laughs> <laughs> try to put Do you a, want to write that in your perf. list of instructions? <laughs> I dread Look, to this, think. I tell you what, I, can I just say this? Many of the art forms we're talking about, I would take painting, fun enough, out of this because you can do very, very abstract work without having any fine skills, fine art skills, and that's acceptable nowadays, although it used not to be in the olden days. But any musical instrument, any kind of dance, you have to practice like mad and you have to be very good at it to be accepted into the troupe or the orchestra or the band or the quartet or whatever it is. But in acting, people just have to like what you do. Now, in the theatre, we used to have old rules is that you have to be able to be heard. You have to be able to be heard at the back of a, let's say, a thousand seashell. But nowadays, people are wearing microphones, so that ability the ability to project your voice and your emotions over a very large crowd of people has now been taken away. On television, you don't, you don't have to really do anything because they've got a microphone down your throat and a camera up your nostril. So you just, hardly, you just have to be alive. <laughs> you literally have to remain breathing and you've got a performance. You see, I think you actors always do this. The point is, you wanted to be an actress, didn't you? Immediately mm. you left school. Well, look... What I didn't want to do is to work. I wanted to join the circus and run away. And acting seemed like that because you could always pretend to be somebody else. You were always doing something. And the, I, I never gamble. I can't stand gambling. But I've gambled with my life because you never know if what you're going to do will earn you any money, whether you'll get another job, whether the play you're doing will run for six months or six weeks or six days. So your whole life is a kind of gamble. And I love that because I like, I like the idea of moving on and of sudden dramas which burst into your life, which you have to cope with. I didn't want an even life. I didn't want to be able to look into the future and know what I'd be doing in 10 or 20 years' time. I didn't want that. I didn't want a cosy home. I haven't dreamed of anything except except travelling on and seeing the next storm as it approaches. So joining the circus was the only thing I wanted to do and not work. Now, anybody who's worked as in our, in our world knows that you work... You work ceaselessly to learn a play or to get things right or to go out on tour. You work and work and work all the time. But I don't see it as work because if you love it, if what you're doing, and I think this may go for many jobs, if what you're doing you adore, you might be exhausted, you might get two hours sleep, you might be sleeping in somewhere where, which we all have done with rats in the wainscot and, and rain running down the walls, um, and on a very, very humble salary, but you do it because you love what you're doing. So um, so I don't know what to say about acting because I think a lot of people now have a different way of doing it. They're acting for television. Some people only want to be movie stars. Children come up to me and say, how can I be famous? Because that's all they want to do. I never wanted to be famous. I wanted to act well. This is the problem really, isn't it, with the profession? Not Not... Not of the profession's invention, but a young person of 13 or 14 who is passionately interested <clears throat> in, in films, in TV, in, um, in theatre, um, and they want to get started. The getting started in acting is really hard. And let's say that there are some colleges mm -hmm. where you, like RADA, 
Um, and Lambda is, is We call lam- them drama schools, not <clears throat> colleges, Barlow. I'm so sorry. No, drama okay. schools. Um, so let's put those to one side for the moment because they're, they, they are pretty limited and they're right at the top of, of the tree of aspiration. How do you do it? Do you, do you, do you begin to write to people? Do you? Oh, you do everything you possibly can. And quite often leaving even tremendous drama schools like Lambda and Radha and Central and all these things, you come out and you, you may have come out with the gold cup, but somebody might see you, but you might not. It doesn't give you a job. No. You don't get a job. No. And this is the whole thing in life. People who go to university and come out with a, with a degree of somewhere, it doesn't get you a job. The only thing that gets you a job is, is working. And mm. you must start off, I believe, in the most humble, humble way, accept everything you can and get to know your business. Now, that business might be theatre, it might be television, it might be, in our world, acting. You usually are required and requested, and Jodie Comer is a great example of this, yeah. but she made Killing Eve, which was a great smash hit in, on television, therefore on film, filmed medium. So that girl can straddle all worlds. But largely, you've just got to haunt the society you wish to, you wish to join and say yes to everything you're offered, I believe. Now, other people have got a different technique and a different way, different attitude. I knew I would get nowhere unless I said yes to everything. Because of this, I'd started off with the biggest disadvantage you could have in the 60s and 70s when I started acting, which was that I'd been, I'd been a model. Now, in those days, nowadays, people go, oh, how lovely, she's been a model, she, we can put her in this film or whatever. In those days, it was the worst. It was worse than, worse than being a pickpocket. To be a model was just ghastly. And so anybody being a model, you'd immediately get given no lines because they'd assume you were too stupid to learn lines. And you would only be given pretty roles because you were a pretty girl, pretty model. There was a girl called Anne something who became Miss World. And the first job, and they said, she said, I want to be an actress. And they said, oh, well, guess what? We're going to make you one of the three ugly witches in, in Scottish, say it, Scottish play, Macbeth. <laughs> You've got to spit three times and you say it, otherwise you're cursed. You would know that. Listeners know that. Um, anyway, they put her as an ugly, ugly person to show that she's really not pretty, which is ugly. You can't be normal if you're a pretty person or a tall person or whatever. You've got to be something. So I blundered into the world of acting thinking because I loved it so much and I was quite, I could do different kind of voices and I could pretend to be different people and uh, that I would have a good role as a character actress. Not so. So the first bits of my life, I just played pretty girlfriend of. So I was in Steptoe and Son. I was in On the Buses, in the Cuckoo Walls. I was in the, lots and lots of shows where I got paid about 60 quid. Um, and I was just a pretty girl. But that's called a start, isn't it? This is the thing. You have to have a toehold, don't you? And no one could say, could they, that the acting profession is, although you say you, you worked a lot, no one could say that there's any sustainability. There's um, no security there. You can't believe in anything. It doesn't matter even if you've worked a lot. I believe, and it might be wrong, Mags, but Maggie Smith, Dame Maggie Smith, was given an Oscar for California Suite, I think it was. She didn't work for a year. Nobody dared approach her. Mm. I mean, it does, there's no guarantee of anything. No. And also the, the, the jobs that go out tend to go out to the people because there's usually a lot of money in shows. And so it's only going to go to people who they see as a surefire hit, so big names. So all the people who are coming up, and yet again you see a part which you could have done on your head and would have really made something of going to somebody who's just 
now already a name. You don't resent them for that. But there's something ghastly about it. You go, yet again, yet again, yet again. Mm-hmm. And the amount of parts I looked at and thought, I would love to have given anything to do that. And you, and even now, people, there are probably people who thought, I would love to have been cast as Patsy because I might have done this with it or that with it. Of course. Although I think that was different because she didn't really exist as a of character. Of course, and, and the, 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 the big difference is that most plays, um, most plays don't, I mean, Let's put it this way. Could you rattle off a top 10 of really popular plays, as we can with operas, which are the ones that fill the houses, fill the coffers, um, surefire hits? It depends. What, if you, in, the, in the West End of London, not really. The West End is now what we would call jukebox musicals, and that's not an unkind thing. I'm just saying they're mu- it's usually music that people know from ABBA or the Jersey Boys or wherever it is. So you can go yeah. along and you will understand and know all the songs that are there. And the plays are some very sharp, clever little short plays. When people, let's say, in repertory theatre or want to fill a theatre, you might go to something amusing, like Wild, The Importance of Being Earnest, which is a great crowd-pleasing, yeah. very funny. Yeah. You might go to Private Lives, which is a hugely popular old card play. Hamlet, Dull. Hamlet. Hamlet. Everybody's, yes, everybody every would like major to do, actor. Um, yes, they would. But I don't think you want to take that out on tour unless you've got a giant star in it, because people were going, oh, God, Shakespeare. But most of the... Most of it. I mean, what I'm really saying is um, you, the majority of theatre work mm. is, is going to be new. Yes, it is. And, and, and so you, um, you're not going to get the opportunity of playing that role no. necessarily. And, I mean, nobody's going to make Ab Fab Mark II no, with a not. completely different but cast. But what they are going to do so, is take Michael Frayn's play, Noises Off, and play it again and again and again, and people literally almost being taken out on stretchers they love so much. That's right, that's so right. So there are some things, and Alan Akebourne's brilliantly crafted plays, mm. and Tom Stoppard at his best, mm. wordy and clever and brilliant, and David Hare. And I mean, you just look at Christopher Hampton. There, We've got a stunning array of playwrights. And that's But why. it's very hard to get them to get those as a play in the West End, as a revival or as a, as a new production of it, because people are looking for returns. Yes. And the, it's very, it's an expensive business now. Just going back, the point is, I, I see you as someone who has done so many different things. And I'm not sure that um, many people would know that it, you um, were a regular diarist in the Times newspaper. It was ages ago. Um, I had... Look, the thing is, having... I'm the daughter of a, of a of an army officer, and one of Daddy's maxims was, always present a moving target. Now, knowing <laughs> that I was standing on pretty marshy ground anyway as an actress, having been a model, I was darted about and would t- take up anything, I think. So when I was asked to be a membre du jury, a member of the jury... Um, judging films down in Mont- Monte Carlo. Excuse me? No, I did that twice. I did that twice. And you go down how and you watch... How old were you then? No, I was, I was completely grown up. I mean, didn't... No, how old? In your 30s? Or... Yes. Maybe, or maybe... Yes. No, we yeah, were married no, maybe when you were 30s. 40. Maybe so it in must my be 30s. in your 30s. It was in my 30s. Anyway, early, early 30s? Yeah, okay. But, um, but that was because I was... Some moving was target, somebody. I'd say. No, but this was interesting because we were judging... We were judging... Um, uh, Films and so you'd watch forty-two films in a week. We had to do, discuss them in French, but they were we had ju- judges from Japan and America <laughs> and Czechoslovakia and everywhere from all over the world. And then and um, and once I was a, 
Madame Vice-Présidente, anyway. So you do things like that. And I wrote it up. I wrote a piece because I had had such an amusing time, particularly with one of the old Russian judges who was kind of on the the sly trying to bribe me to vote for his boy, his Russian actor. And I wrote it up and sent it to the listener, or sent it to a friend of mine, the great Gavin Miller, and said, do you think he worked for the listener or he used to write? Anyway, he said, I'll stick this into the listener. And it went in. And then uh, David Hyam, Anthony Goff from David Hyam, the great literary agency, read it and said, I like the way, like the cut of your jib, we could represent you. Would you like that as a writer? I went, well, sure. Your father loved your writing, didn't he? Yeah. He he always um, seemed to um, have an ambition for you. Well, he would have longed you to have been a writer. And you have written several books. My career went a bit wild and um, flaky. Um, yes, I have. But so I wrote for the Times, for, and then I used to do reviewing of books and travel pieces and stuff, because as an actor, you never know when you're going to get another job. Also, it's quite nice um, to have a very full dance card. Also, there's nothing like a deadline to get you to do things. So I love doing writing. I also sat at the same time on several boards. So I was on all kinds of advisory boards, Friends Provident. Um, and Capital Radio, also on the South Bank Centre, was one of the trustees of the South Bank Centre, and things like this. You, the, the, the thing about being a moving target mm. is, and to a certain extent, I know that this is the same in the music business, the thing about being a moving target is that the people in the separate disciplines tend not to take you as seriously because Correct. you present yourself as someone, oh, I can do that. A flippity and tippet, I, a fly by night, a gadfly. I know, Because I know. people don't really, they don't know how to categorise someone who, rather like Jonathan Miller, for example, mm. um, they, they call these people Renaissance men and yeah. Um, chameleons. Yeah. Your career seems to have suggested that, that you've, been not necessarily treated so as seriously as you should have been. Well, this is one of the great joys. Having been in um, playing the part of Purdy in The New Avengers, a very vigorous kind of tough little policewoman with short hair, kind of uh, fighty kind of abrasive girl, not much given to charm. When I was offered the part of Hedda Gabler for The Dundee Rep by Robert Robinson, and I was I don't think I've ever been so thrilled and flattered that he could Mm. see in me an actress rather Mm. than Mm. a character, you know, just a kind of cipher of a a kind of person. And I don't think I've enjoyed anything as much as doing that. uh, The the press came up, I think the press came up for the first night because they were going to go, ooh, 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 think you can do it. And to my great, great joy, they they wrote kind things. I didn't see the Hedda Gabler. Um... Oh, we weren't together. No, but I do remember seeing an enormous poster mm. when I went through Dundee Station. I was doing some, going to Aberdeen or something mm. um, with Scottish Opera or Opera North, and I saw an enormous poster. Hedda Gabler, um, Joanna Lumley, um, I remember that. And then, of course, I saw The Cherry Orchard, which you did. I did up there as well. Which, and Jonathan Miller asked and me to Jonathan do that. And then Jonathan asked me I to do I know these something. things are really precious. The, I, only, they're only <clears> precious <throat> to me because, because, of course, in life, and you're lucky to be remembered at all, people remember you as Patsy or as Purdy or even as Sapphire and Sapphire and Steel, which are television shows. And when people say to me, what have you done that you most like doing? It's really odd to say to them, Hedda Carbler and Dundee Rep. Mm. 
because they've, they kind of go, you left, you lost me there, old love. Don't mm. know. Was she like Patsy at all? You know, and so we go down a different road. So the thing is, just be grateful. Swap your hats, put your clothes on, keep smiling, keep darting around like Quicksilver and know who you are inside. Know that whatever job you get given, Stevie, this is, this is Monte Importante. <laughs> I'm just, listen, I'm leaning forward. It's almost a pointing it. finger pointing at me. Whatever you do, whether it's a voiceover or a radio play or a huge part in a movie, or a small part in a musical, or a large lead in a touring straight play. Whatever you do, do it with your utmost conviction and dedication to every single bit of the performance. Mm. We were listening last night to some music, and it turned out you said it was a clarinet, it had the clarinet in the clarinet concerto, and you said, Mozart, and you said, this sounds like Andrew Mariner. And then we listened to the very end, and it was Mariner, (laughs) because you, and you said he takes such particular care of every note he plays. Now, I say that to whatever job you do, you've got to give absolutely every bit of your energy and expertise and love, and it might be noticed by no one, but you have to do no, it. I, I couldn't agree more. You, it, it, it's, uh, otherwise, it, it, if there's no commitment to that joy of, of being in everything deeply, then you, you're wasting your time. Yeah. You might as well go home. Yeah. Um, so being a moving target... Mm. You, the other part of your life you, you really has um, threads going back to generations, doesn't it? Which is your, well, to Traveling. be perfectly honest, I think, you're, I think you have traveller writ large in you. You mm. travel so well. Do you know what I mean? And mm. I think your your mother had something to, of that spirit, didn't she? She of did. being interested in people. So, so how did that start? Um, you, what was the first, I don't know, what you call them, travel show, travel log? They're, the, they're not travel logs. No, they're not. No, they're they're, they're doc- travel documentaries. The very first one I did, I think, was called The White Rajas of Sarawak. Mm. And um, I was asked by a lovely company called Warner Sisters, a very small English company of run by women, and uh, to go out and follow the story of the Brooke family, who ran a, who ran Sarawak for 150 years, three generations of Brooks. Um, and I met the very last ones, the daughters of the very last Raja. Raja is the kind of word that they used for somebody who administrated it. And then eventually Sarawak was tendered back to the British government, and then eventually it got hitched onto Malaysia, which is what it is now. But it was thrilling. And going out there, and they chose me because they knew that I'd had a childhood in, in Malaya, as it was then, very close to Borneo, where Sarawak is positioned on that great island. Um, and they thought that I'd be familiar with the, with the local ways and customs. So I just adored doing that. But Stevie, long before this, of course, I was born in a suitcase. I'd left the great Himalayas mm, mm. and travelled halfway across the world on the Franconia to this country before I was 
one year old or when I was, you mm. know, I was a babe in arms anyway. Mm. So I'd started off traveling. So I never had a place called home any more than my parents had a place called home because they mm. were both brought up in India. And then for generations on both sides, we came from traveling families. They were doctors, they were soldiers, they were diplomats. They were all travelers and they came mm. from Scotland and Denmark and mm. brought up in, you know, New Zealand and coming from, coming from everywhere. Um, so the idea of traveling was always very attractive. And some of the earliest poems I can remember was, I wish I lived in a caravan with a horse to drive like a peddler man. And I just <laughs> loved that. And the world is round and I will ride, rumble and splash to the other side. And those early poems, which stuck in my head. I've always dreamed of just going on and over the next, the white hill winding over the next hill. Who will you find? And of course, throughout this, you meet the most ordinary people, quite apart from going to places that will become burnt into your heart, literally the best the world mm. can show you. You meet people so exceptionally interesting, courteous, diffident, kindly, amusing, wise, mad. I couldn't love it more. People say, um, so where are you going on holiday? To us. Mm. Where are you going on holiday this year? Um, they've been saying it all our lives. <laughs> I know, but look, the truth is, even when we don't go on holiday, we don't even have a holiday. I can remember one year, our holiday was being in a car together on a Thursday afternoon for about three and a half hours, driving from somewhere to somewhere. This is the nearest we've got to a holiday. So isn't this fun? We yeah, loved but, it. But, but, the, <laughs> but the, it's this pitiful. is not out of... People say, where's your favourite hotel? All kinds of travel things say, where's your favourite hotel? Where's your, where's your favourite spa? Where's your... We've never gone to anywhere. We, where's we your are... favourite restaurant? We do nothing. Do you know how dull we are? <laughs> Look, Stevie, we're going to have to stop now because people have got things to do. They've got busy lives. Well, I, I feel I've still an awful lot more to ask. Yeah. Um, you, but but we'll return to that. Mm. You, um, what piece of music would you like us to end this episode? Oh, with? I tell you what I love. I tell you what I love is the Prisoner's Chorus from Beethoven's fabulous and really one-off opera, Fidelio, which he had so many goes at trying to get it right, and he wasn't a natural opera composer like Mozart, where they just flowed out, or Puccini or Rossini. But the prisoner's chorus, absolutely thrilling. Sublime. been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle, burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and Ben Tullow, and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson, and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you've heard the following music. Clarinet Concerto in A Major, K622, Adagio, by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Performed by Andrew Mariner, Sir Neville Mariner, 
an academy of St. Martin in the Fields. The record company was Pentatone Music. Fidelio, Opus 72, Act 1. Overtulust in Freiluft den Atem liked Zeheben. Live. By Ludwig van Beethoven. Performed by Gundula Janowitz. Lucia Pop, René Colo, Adolfo Dallaposa, Dietrich Fischer Dieskau, Hans Soten, Manfred Jungwert, Weiner Staatsoppenkor, and the Vienna Philharmonic, and Leonard Bernstein. And the record company was Naxos Rights International. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Puccini's Turandot, Act 3, Scene 2. Diecimila anni al nostro imperatore, performed by Malaga Philharmonic Orchestra, Giovanna Casola and Alexander Rabari, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 61. Third Movement, performed by Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra, Takako Nishizaki and Kenneth Jean. Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.